Studentaftons podcast presenteras i samarbete med Broder Jakobs steningsbageri i Lund. I think the biggest surprise is just how closely the US and Sweden work together almost across the board. Uh, I, you know, I, I obviously it, it makes sense because you have um, I think a lot of the same common values and interests, you know, our desire to um, you know, push for the world for democracy and uh, human rights and um, you, know, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, all being core values. Creating a product that actually solves an important need that people will actually use. Um, we call this product market fit in Silicon Valley. I, I tend to think that if it's a product company, it's better to have a CEO who um, really understands the customer, really understands product, could be a designer, could be a programmer, can think through how the product works. Dear ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this evening's Student Afton. My name is Madina Refoy, and I am the president of the Student Afton Committee. A student body organization that was founded already in 1905 in a purpose to be an independent platform that honors the freedom of speech. Over the years, Student Afton has invited a big diversity of guests. Some examples of these guests are Ingrid Bedencourt, Edward Snowden, Jimi Hendrix, Frank Zappa, and every Swedish prime minister since 1930, and many, many more. Tonight, the Academic Society, Lunds University, and Student Afton have the big honor to present the American entrepreneur, diplomat, and US ambassador for Sweden, Ken Howery. Our moderator for tonight is Johannes Lindvall, professor in political science at Lunds University. Tonight, we will start with a um, speech by Ken, followed by a moderated conversation with Johannes. After that, you in the audience, but also you who follow us on the stream tonight, will have the opportunity to ask questions for tonight's guest during a 30 minutes of Q&A. Dear ladies and gentlemen, now it is with a big honor for me to present tonight's guest, Ken Howery. Hello, everyone. It's a great pleasure to be here in Lund. I'd like to start by thanking the student Afton organizers, including Chairperson Medina Rufai, for inviting me and Professor Johannes Lindvall for moderating the conversation tonight. I understand that Professor Lindvall and I are about the same age, which is nice because it's good to have some generational backup here on stage. I arrived in Sweden to serve as a U.S. ambassador almost exactly a year ago. And it goes without saying, it has been a very eventful year, not only due to the pandemic, but personally as well. I've been learning what it means to work in public service, something that I've always wanted to do, but a type of work that is very different from what I have done in the past. This year, as you know, is also an election year in the United States, which makes things even more interesting. I don't doubt it has been an eventful year for all of you at Lund University as well. Because of the pandemic, we've had to do things differently at the U.S. Embassy. Not only have we had to adapt how we interact 
with the Swedish government, but as some Swedish business travelers and students, and even Swedes generally, may have discovered, some of our most basic functions, such as our consular services, have had to radically change. The embassy's consular section usually has lots of visitors every day, and we've been forced to curtail that. At the beginning of the pandemic, our focus naturally turned to helping American citizens in Sweden, either in trying to get them home or helping out in any way we could. To mitigate risk to our team members locally, those at the embassy who could work from home have been doing so. That has posed its own challenges when we are tasked to manage relations between Sweden and Washington, with a six-hour time difference and everyone dispersed and using systems prone to cyber attacks and infiltration by hostile regimes. So, while adapting to how the embassy works and learning the history, culture, and customs of this great country, as well as managing the day-to-day -day business of keeping our relations strong and growing in spite of COVID-19, I'm sorry that has taken me so long to get to Loon. But I'm very happy to be here now. As I mentioned, I'm not a career diplomat. I started my career as an entrepreneur. After graduating from Stanford, I did not join a large established firm, but instead I found my first job working for a small fund making investments with a friend from university, Peter Thiel. Our office was in a former broom closet with no windows. It was so small that every time Peter left, I had to scoot my chair in as far as I could so he could squeeze by and get out the door. However, we wanted to be on Silicon Valley's famous Sand Hill Road, and that's all we could afford. While working in our broom closet, our fund became the first investor in a small encryption company called Fieldlink. Fieldlink was doing encryption for the most cutting-edge technology at the time, the Palm Pilot. Do any of you remember the Palm Pilot? A few hands. It was sort of a forerunner to smartphones, but without cell phone functionality, where you could keep your contacts and calendar and use the screen with the syllabus. Well, intrigued by Fieldlink's vision, but even more so by their excellent chief technology officer, I decided to join their founding team and see where we could go with Palm Pilot encryption. Not long after joining, a group of us from Fieldlink were at a local Chinese restaurant in Palo Alto for lunch. Being res recent graduates, our budgets were tight. So when the check came, complex discussions began about how we would split the bill. In the middle of that conversation, someone joked, wouldn't it be nice if we could just use our Palm Pilots to beam money to one another? Everyone stopped, thought for a few minutes, and the next thing I knew, we were changing our Palm Pilot encryption company into an e-payments company. Several friends and I started PayPal in 1998, but we had to try five different business models before we found one that worked. In addition, our brilliant idea to beam money between Palm Pilots was called one of the 10 worst ideas of the year by a local technology publication. Not exactly a confidence booster. It wasn't until users started using PayPal to accept payments for eBay auctions that we really were able to find success. When I think back on that experience, I often wonder how we did it. No one in the PayPal team had payment experience. Most of us didn't even have internet experience. It was a huge risk to invest all that money and time, actually years, on something outside our expertise. However, by seeing the opportunity where others didn't and madly embracing the unknowns, 
of where that opportunity would take us, we were ultimately able to find success. After nearly 20 years as a venture capitalist and entrepreneur, I decided to embrace another unknown by leaving the private sector to serve in government. Although being ambassador doesn't exactly carry the same risks as starting a company, it is quite unlike anything I've ever done before. Since I arrived, I've made it a point to get out and meet as many Swedes across your amazingly diverse and beautiful country as possible. I think that seeing opportunity where others don't and fiercely embracing the unknowns are qualities that many people in the United States and Sweden share. And I would suggest that is also why the two countries are so successful in creating new, exciting companies. Just last week, The Economist reported on the large rise in startups in the United States during the pandemic and the positive prospects of that development for the U.S. economy and employment. I wouldn't be surprised if there were similar reports about Sweden. One of the key elements of the U.S.-Swedish relationship is our economic relationship. And I'm very pleased to report that our trade and investment ties are strong. Today we trade $25 billion worth of goods and services annually. We have also invested over $90 billion in each other's economies, creating hundreds of thousands of jobs. Sweden is the 13th largest investor in the United States as well. Entrepreneurship is helped enormously by fundamentally strong economies where the possibility for success is greatly enhanced. By being sound and strong partners, the United States and Sweden provide the frameworks for entrepreneurial success. That can be seen in Silicon Valley and the Stockholm region, second only to Silicon Valley in producing unicorns, a term for a privately held startup with more than $1 billion. I gather that Skåne region also has a significant share of startups, particularly in the medical field, and much of that innovation is sparked by this university. Another shared value of Americans and Swedes is the concept of serving the greater good. I come from a family in Texas that believes in public service. So when the president asked me to serve as the U.S. ambassador to Sweden, I jumped at the chance. It is a privilege to represent the United States in any country, but it is a particular privilege to serve as a U.S. ambassador in a country like Sweden, one of America's most important partners in Europe and a force for good in the world. The relationship between the United States and Sweden has deep roots. Almost four centuries ago, during the reign of Queen Christina, Swedes established a colony in present-day Delaware. And in 1783, Sweden was the first non-belligerent country to recognize our new republic as an independent country. Turns out my most distinguished predecessor, Benjamin Franklin, had a role in that. Since that time, our relationship has only grown stronger, in large part because the millions of Swedes who have immigrated to the United States and helped make our country what it is today. Roughly four million Americans can trace their roots back to Sweden, and the United States continues to welcome, on average, close to 4,000 Swedish students to U.S. colleges and universities each year, as well as hundreds of thousands of other Swedish visitors. Sweden is one of our most trusted and reliable partners in addressing many of the complex issues we face globally. Issues like China, North Korea, the Arctic, Russia, Belarus, Afghanistan, Iraq, development aid, and nuclear nonproliferation, to name just a few.
As ambassador, I want to strengthen our security and defense cooperation in order to counter the challenges posed by non-democratic regimes, prioritize deepening our economic cooperation to promote the mutual prosperity of both of our countries, and building on these two pillars, develop even greater connections between our peoples through artistic, cultural, and scientific programs and exchanges. Speaking to you here in Lund is a big part of developing greater connections between our two countries. Whether you decide to take a degree in the United States or start working after you have graduated, in almost every field, industry or service, our two countries come into contact with each other. The relationship only grows stronger the more we know about each other and the more connections that we have. Before I end my prepared remarks, I would like to provide a little background on the electoral process in the United States. In spite of all the reporting about the U.S. election in the Swedish press, it can be hard to understand at times. Now, for those of you who have had Professor Lindvall's introductory political science class here at Lund, this may already be clear, but I presume that all of you have had that opportunity. I suspect that a number of you would really like me to speculate about who is going to win the presidential contest on November 3rd and why. Unfortunately, I can't do that. Other than to say, it will almost certainly be a Democrat or a Republican. Even if I had a crystal ball that told me the outcome, I couldn't share that information because of rules that forbid me and all other U.S. government employees from engaging in partisan politics or giving the impression that I support one party over the other. As an executive branch employee, I support the objectives of the U.S. government, not a political party. But of course, I can talk about the U.S. process. First of all, it is not just a matter of deciding who will be president and vice president. In two weeks, American citizens will be also elect 435 members of Congress, 35 senators, some state governors, thousands of others, state and local officials. Second, it is admittedly a long process. Candidates for president often announce their candidacy a year or two before election day in order to build their campaign teams and start fundraising. In part, that is because we have such a long nominating process for the two major parties that takes up the better part of a year. That process consists of the primaries and caucuses that we saw in the spring and the largely virtual party conventions this summer. In addition, the United States is a big country. By population and by geography, and candidates who are often known well in only one state have lots of ground to cover if they ever hope to be elected. It is really after the first weekend in September that the campaign between the parties start in earnest. There is not a lot written in the U.S. Constitution about the process of picking our top leaders. There are requirements of age, citizenship, and how long one must have lived in the United States to be a candidate for higher federal office. There are stipulations about term lengths, and there are the provisions about the Electoral College, which is perhaps the most confusing part of our electoral system. The way the Electoral College is selected has changed since the United States was founded. But its function and the mechanism that decides who becomes president and its design to give every state a say in the outcome of the presidency has remained.
Each U.S. state has two senators and a number of representatives in the House of Representatives. My home state of Texas has two senators and 36 representatives, so it has 38 electoral votes. While North Dakota, for example, has two senators and only one representative, or three electoral votes. The total for the country is 538 electoral votes, and as the Constitution states, the next president must get a majority of them, or at least 270. That will be the magic tally that you see as the target on election night, with states colored red or blue, depending on which candidate has gotten the most votes in a state. In other words, a U.S. presidential election is really 50 smaller elections combined into one large one. Statisticians have made a sport out of dissecting polls from each state to draw conclusions about how the various states might add up. And like any exciting sport where the stakes are high, it will make for great television viewing. November 3rd and November 4th. I'm already planning my all-nighter, and I imagine I'm not the only person in this room doing so. I want to thank you all again for inviting me to speak with you tonight. I'm eager to hear what's on your minds. To start, Professor Linval and I are going to have a discussion for several minutes. Then I'll be happy to take your questions. Thank you very much. So, um, Ambassador Hari, you, you told us a little bit about your um, background. Uh, but I'd still like to start by asking you, so you graduated from Stanford in 1998, and soon thereafter you founded PayPal, and a few years after that you founded a venture capital firm that's invested in many of the companies that are most well-known in the world today. W wasn't that a rather uh, complicated way of re reaching your real goal of becoming ambassador to the Swedes? <laughs> Um, sometimes it's more enjoyable to take the scenic route. <laughs> <laughs> so how long have you had this plan? So I've wanted to do um, public service since I was uh, a teenager. Uh, it went back to, uh, you know, both of my grandfathers had served in World War II, one in the U.S. Army and one in the U.S. Navy. And as a kid, I always looked up to their service. Um, and, you know, putting themselves in harm's way um, to give back to the country that's, you know, had given us so much. So I had a, uh, a long-term desire to, at some point in my life, uh, go into public service myself. I didn't know exactly what that would look like. I didn't know um, when or how. I always imagined it'd be probably much later in my career, maybe like 20, 25 years down the road. Uh, I guess I originally thought I would maybe run for office, um, something more like um, politics. Um, however, the more I learned about um, diplomacy, the State Department, I, f I felt that was more of a fit for my interests. Um, I've always followed, you know, foreign affairs. I've, um, I love, um, love foreign cultures. I love travel. Um, and so this became a goal of mine um, some point when I was uh, working as a venture capitalist. And I... Um, when I had this offer to come to uh, become ambassador to Sweden, it was literally a dream come true. Um, you know, kind of inconvenient timing in a way, but I also knew, um, like many things, you maybe only have uh, one opportunity um, in life. So I immediately leapt at, leapt at it, um, you know, kind of accepted on the spot. Uh, it took me a while to get here. 
there's a um, very kind of thorough um, process to um, vet and clear um, nominees for the executive branch. Um, we looked this up and actually um, it turns out it took less time to build the Empire State Building than it took for me to get confirmed by the Senate. <laughs> so, um, but I d got here now and we've made up for lost time, so. So um, this is Student Afton, the, the student's evening. So, so I'd like to um, ask you a little bit about your, your own experiences as, as a student. Sort of thinking back over your career and, and the things you've done in life, what are the sorts of things you are glad you did when you were at university, and what are the sorts of things you sort of regret not doing when you were at university? Yeah, no, you know, it's, um, it's fine. Just being on campus again is very, like, kind of makes, makes you nostalgic for um, being uh, back, you know, a university student. It's like a, such a fun time in life. Um, so definitely, yeah, hope everyone's enjoying, enjoying their time here. Um, no, I, I think uh, some of the things I, I think I did that I really uh, I'm glad I did were, number one, I tried lots of different activities, um, organizations, etc. new things I hadn't tried to see um, if there might be certain things I was good at or truly enjoyed. I kind of wrote for student papers, kind of one of the editors there. I did study abroad, um, moved out to, to Germany for uh, six months. I um, was in a play, student play, um, lo lots of fun activities uh, like that. Um, so that's something I, I definitely, pre I'm glad I did. Another thing that worked really well for me, which I think makes a lot of sense if you're especially at a place like Stanford or Lund, where you're probably surrounded by just tons of really smart people is um, I personally optimized my um, classwork for um, diminishing returns on learning and, and then um, spent the, the extra time just trying to get to know as many students as possible. And so I was trying to be really social, um, just meet as, yeah, students are in different, um, studying, you know, different degrees and, um, and ultimately some of my best friends in the world are still uh, university students. It's also, um, I ended up working with a lot of students I met in my, in my four years in undergrad. And maybe most significantly, I ended up getting my first job through someone I had met uh, through some alumni stuff on, on campus. And so it actually, um, that made a huge difference in my career. Um, so that, that was definitely, I think, a, a completely right call for, for me and uh, my, my path. And in terms of what I would have uh, done differently, or regret not doing. This might sound really uh, the advice most people <laughs> want to hear um, at university, but I guess we, we kind of, I had all these uh, internships lined up every summer, and it was a good chance to get working experience and get these jobs on your resume. I think in retrospect, it didn't matter at all though. Okay. Um, it never really led to me getting a permanent job. I learned, some, met some nice people, like, some good experiences, but um, I think in retrospect, I probably would have just uh, maybe traveled or enjoyed, enjoyed my uh, time a little more instead of um, worried so much that I needed that to get my uh, a post, post-graduation degree, uh, uh, sorry, job, so. So what, what was your part in the play? 
Well, so um, our big rival at uh, St- where I went to university at Stanford is um, UC Berkeley. And uh, we have a big American football game every year. It's kind of a, they call it the big game. And uh, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a fun, making fun of Berkeley a little bit. And I played the president of uh, Cal Berkeley. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so I've heard through friends who teach at, at Stanford where you did your uh, bachelor's degree that there is some concern among the faculty there that too many students don't actually get their degrees because they want to become billionaires before they finish their education. Um, would you, but you got your degree. Uh, would, would, you, would you advise others to follow your lead? I don't think there's one size fit all for these right. things. You know, it's, it's almost like a running joke. Um, it's more prestigious to drop out than to finish because uh, who wants to be the next Mark Zuckerberg or um, Bill Gates or something. But no, no I, think that's, um, I think that's kind of oversimplifying what's a, a very complex calculation. Right. I mean, for me personally, I would not have wanted to drop out. Right. I think it's too valuable the time being in university. You have your whole life to work. Um, you have, it's such a special time in life. I think, I guess maybe, um, I would personally think the only time it makes sense to do is probably if you have literally a world-changing idea and you feel that idea is not going to be around in a year or two when you graduate. I see. And it's possible there are, there are a lot of companies like that where it's very time-sensitive. You have this window and then if you don't launch it, someone else is going to launch it, and you'll never have that chance again. Um, in, in order to reach that level, I think you have to have a huge level of conviction. You probably want to get some external validation from maybe some angel investors, maybe a co-founder or two. I think most, I think most, I think most ideas at that stage probably are not formed enough for people to have the conviction to want to drop out. But I think it's a very personal decision. I don't think there's one size fits all. Uh, I think that um, everyone should decide for themselves. You, you hear both cases. I'm, I'm, there's definitely, um, there's lots of stories where people had an opportunity to join an incredible startup and then stayed in school and later regretted it. The, the ones are obviously, um, there's a co-founder of Facebook who went back to Harvard because his, um, I guess his father wanted him to finish. And uh, I think he probably later regretted it. Less shares than he would have by far otherwise. Um, Is that know. the fellow from the movie? Uh, it's, uh, I, I think it was covered in the movie. Okay. Um, you know, there, there's other companies I know that are multi-billion dollar companies where the same thing, one of the founders, there's a similar one that um, happened where the, one of the founders decided to finish his degree at Stanford and missed out on you know, huge opportunity. So you see it both ways. Right. There's probably a lot of people who then, I've had friends drop out and start a company and not work out. So it, I think there's pros and cons to, to both. But so, so I'd like to ask you a couple of things about your experiences from, from uh, the, the technology industry. So, so you've either uh, founded or help, helped found or invested in companies that have sort of changed the daily lives of most of us in this room Country, companies like PayPal, I think the venture capital firm you then founded invested in Airbnb and other, uh, other companies. So, you know, 10 years from now, what sorts of things do you imagine will have changed our daily lives between now and then? 
So let me preface this by stating that I have spent nearly every waking hour for the, next, for the last uh, two or three years completely focused on foreign policy, right. focused on learning about the culture, the, foreign, the politics, the foreign policy of Sweden, um, actually getting here and doing my job as ambassador. So unfortunately, I don't follow the tech industry the same way I did for 20 years. Um, also want to caveat this by saying there, I have, there are some technologies I'm super excited by, but since I actually have friends working on companies in the sectors due to ethics world, I can't talk about those. Um, so that being said, there's still um, a couple things I think are, that are exciting. Um, I think personalized medicine is still a sector that is still early. We're going to see a lot of development, I believe, in the next decade. This is basically where you, um, you've had the cost of genomic sequencing has come down to $100 or probably in that range. The accuracy has improved. So everyone can very easily afford to get their genome sequenced. Um, at, that, at some point soon, I think you'll be able to develop drugs that right now it's either it works for everyone or it doesn't really work at all. You could, you could target drugs that target certain subsets of uh, um, people's genomes, meaning there could be more drugs that actually get approved for different subsets of the population. So you might get um, more drugs approved. Hopefully you could find drugs that are more effective, um, that work better for you. Obviously they can, they're already doing some of this, like different diets for different blood types or maybe different supplements for after doing a barrage of blood tests. But this would be the next level. I think that's really exciting and um, will help improve healthcare as a sector. Another one I think that I've wanted to see this for a while, but no one's um, really cracked the code yet, is the home diagnostics market. I think I can imagine um, you go home in your kitchen, you have a device that's a, a box, you buy cartridges for different things you want to test, um, you, you prick your finger, the blood, blood drop goes on, it runs a test, you get a result in five minutes. Everything from you could test your cholesterol, your cortisol, um, it would allow for a lot of quantified self measurements. Let's try a different diet for a week, run blood tests in my kitchen, get instant feedback, and then we could tailor, my, tailor your, your diet right there. And there's like hundreds of applications. This became, I think, particularly relevant watching COVID-19. If you could like test for that in your kitchen, every single person had an, an accurate um, device, I think we would have uh, done a much better job at controlling the pandemic across the world. So I think that's another a second sector I, I think um, would like to see hopefully in the next 10 years. So uh, a lot of folks are worried about the social consequences of some of the new technologies that successful companies have introduced over the past decade or two. Um, a lot of folks worry about what's going to happen to people's jobs, what's happening to political discourse, and sort of how new technologies, new ways of doing business influence the way we live our daily lives. Are you worried about those things? Um, well, let's see, if you broke that down, I guess it sounds like that would be um, talking about, let's see, automation, yeah. robotics, AI. Political communication. Political communication. 
and I guess um, how the technologies we use just ex affect our experience of daily life. We're we're sort of logged on all the time. I guess there's, I guess there's um, phone addiction is another yeah. one going in there. Um, no, I, I think I think these issues you're bringing up are um, legitimate legitimate concerns. I think I think I definitely spend too much time on my cell phone. Um, I, I tend to think there's, I think a lot of these technologies, there's typically um, pros and cons, I guess. You know, so I, the negative, I spend too much time on my phone. A lot of people I've spoken to probably have a similar, similar situation. On the other hand, it's like you have a, a second brain in your pocket. And so you're having a discussion, you're like, I don't know the answer. Let's ask Google. We'll know in 10 seconds. That's not permitted here, by the way. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so, I, I, and then I guess, you know, there's um, automation. You're like, it's going to put some people out of work. Um, at the same time, um, it allows you to, like, onshore maybe manufacturing. Um, it, might, um, it might make products cheaper. And then hopefully people could get retrained. So I, I think it's not helpful just to focus on the negatives. I think there's probably neg negatives with many technologies. Um, you know, people are complaining that um, with the invention of the car is going to um, put, uh, you know, people that drive a horse and buggy out of work. So I, I tend to think there's been kind of um, these kind of arguments forever. I tend to think on average the positives outweigh the negatives. Um, but you're right, there probably should be some efforts for people developing technology to, to make sure they develop things in a way that the, the, the harms are minimized. Um, kind of a, this, the side effects don't really affect society in a negative way as, as, as much as possible. So, so I read a couple of articles, uh, I think one or two years ago, about how Silicon Valley executives uh, tend to put their kids in schools where only pen and paper are allowed. So one article was called something like Silicon Valley parents are raising their kids tech-free. And another article, I think, in the New York Times was about a Silicon Valley school that doesn't compute. Should the fact that folks who work in this industry don't want their kids exposed to technology at a young age tell us something? Let's see. I, uh, you know, I... Um so I'm, I don't I'm asking as a parent. Oh, okay, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, no, um, and I don't have kids yet, so um, I haven't extensively researched what effect growing up with screens has on the development of um, young children. I, I could see there could be some negative side effects. Um, again, there's probably some pros as well. Uh, maybe you can log on to, uh, I know there's nonprofits that um, that completely teach, you know, children different, learn trigonomet uh, trigonometry or um, history or engineering. Um, maybe that, maybe parents are using more of that now that there's a lot of kids uh, studying from home, not in Sweden, but in other countries. Um, I think that, um, it, it's, I think it's worth looking into. I think it, at the very least, it probably makes sense to limit, limit screen time um, I'll bring this up <laughs> at home tomorrow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, 
you know, you, you have experiences of starting companies, you have a lot of experiences of investing in companies. Let's say I'm a, I'm a student, let's say I'm a student at this university who thinks uh, I have an idea that could be turned into uh, a business idea or, or some other um, benefit, um, uh, maybe. Uh, I, and I, I think if I were a student ha who had an idea like that, I imagine I would get a lots of different types of advice. Mm. Uh, what sorts of advice do you think a student in that position should listen to, and what sorts of advice do you think they should ignore? So, yeah, I, I tend to think, um, yeah, I, 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 there are some things that I think are uh, probably harder than people think. I think, um, one of those is, for example, finding, creating a product that actually solves an important need that people will actually use. Um, we call this product market fit in Silicon Valley. I, um, you know, I think there's like a lot of uh, technologists or engineers or scientists who will come up with um, a new technology, and then we call this uh, technology looking for a product. And so you're like, you invent something that's legitimately um, a cool idea, you've, something you've invented, but then it doesn't quite solve an important need. Um, you try to force that, but no one will use it as a result. You almost need to look exactly how do you, how do you solve an important problem. And you look at, at, when I used to work at PayPal, we had, you know, it took us, you know, we had five failed business models before we found one that worked. Um, we basically went from Palm Pilot encryption to beaming money between Palm Pilots to um, online payments, but um, where we would try to earn money off of the, uh, the float or the interest as money was being sent around between users. We went to online payments, trying to monetize it by upselling people credit cards. We went to online payments to um, buying or partnering with the bank and trying to upgrade people to online bank accounts. And, um, and then ultimately, and most of those we never even got to the execution phase. We, we just kind of figured out that what, when it worked. And the, th the one that finally worked was a way for small companies that, could, that wanted to accept payments that were too small to accept Visa and MasterCard directly uh, or a merchant account could sign up with us with no sign-up fees, no monthly fees. And it's specifically those small companies were using PayPal on eBay auctions. And that's the one that finally worked. So it took us six tries in a, about a year to find this product market fit. So I think it's much harder than people imagine. Another one I think that people vastly underestimate is how difficult it is to get distribution or how, how do you acquire customers in a cost-effective way. And I think people usually way underestimate how hard that is. Now I think there's also, people may overestimate certain things as well. I think specifically when it comes to recruiting, I think one thing that we, we luckily did right um, was recruit for talent, not for experience. So like, like I mentioned, when we got our team started, the average age I think was 23. One person I think was 20, and our, our CEO was uh, um, early 30s. Um, and so, you know, mo most of us had just graduated didn't really know what we were doing. 
Um, but in a way that turned out to be a, st- a strength in ways. I would say that, because had we recruited for um, experience, since we changed business models so many times, we would have recruited the wrong people. And then suddenly, um, they're, they're no longer fit anymore. Secondly, if someone had like 20 years payment experience, they're so used to doing things one way that it might be harder for them to think outside of the box. Where we knew nothing about payments. So we didn't know where the box was. And um, the good news is, as, uh, as students here at Lund, who will be graduating soon, um, that means tons of talent and a lot of uh, experience in the future. So I think, in a way, like Lund graduates perfectly set up for this formula. But the 45-year-olds are done. It's too late. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anything else that you think people pay too much attention to? Or, or sort of, um, you know, lessons that people are told about yeah. how to start a company that, that are wrong in your experience? Okay. Let's see here. Yeah. Um, sure. Let's, let's go. Um, let's see here. I guess there's the... Um, There's a question of what, what's the right skill set for like, the CEO. I, I tend to think that if it's a product company, it's better to have a CEO who um, really understands the customer, really understands product. It could be a designer, could be a programmer, can think through how the product works. Um, in this category, I'd put someone like Zuck. Um, he's not like... Um, he's not like maybe the traditional CEO you think of who's um, primarily a salesman. He's, he's, you know, he's a programmer, a, d- a designer. He understands his customer. He gr- built this incredible product. Um, I think, now that's for product companies. I think you want maybe the more sales type CEO if you're doing a big enterprise sales company where you're trying to, to sign multi-million dollar contracts. And it's less about designing the, the perfect product. It's more about instilling faith in large, interpri- large companies to sign multi-million dollar contracts with you. I see. Um, and so I think that might be like, um, you know, there's uh, th- these larger sales companies. So I, I tend to think that's, that's another kind of thing that's maybe not obvious. You don't always want the sales type CEO. That could be um, a bad decision if you're doing a, a product company. I understand. So l- let me turn, turn to your current role as, as ambassador. Um, you know, uh, let's say in a few years you're done with your uh, term here in, in Sweden as ambassador. Um, what, what sorts of results would make you feel that you've sort of accomplished what you set out to do? Well, um, as I mentioned in the speech, so my, I think I'd go back to my priorities. So the first priority, def- um, building the defense and security relationship to counter our um, non-democratic regimes, Um, building uh, trade and investment ties to provide prosperity for both countries, and then building people-to-people ties through um, scientific, cultural, artistic programs and exchanges. So um, I'm happy that we've actually been able to make movement and um, make some big achievements in all three areas. Um, on the first, on defense and security, I'm very happy that, um, unlike when I arrived, the U.S. and Sweden are fully aligned on our on our Arctic strategies. Um, 
um, both countries now have uh, are focused on the the threat that a remilitarized Russia is playing in the Arctic, as well as China's designs in the region. Um, I think um, you know we we supported that with a number of high-level visits here in Sweden, including the Secretary of the Air Force, um, including our new Arctic strategy at the State Department. And now that we ha we're in agreement on this, we're able to uh, refocus resources um, in ensuring that it remains a zone of peace. When it comes to trade and investment, we've actually been very active there as well. Um, you know, one area that I'm really proud of the work uh, that we did at the embassy was on a Swedish ventilator company named Yetnya that provided ventilators for patients with COVID-19. Obviously, as you can imagine, demand for these ventilators went through the roof when COVID came. And so they increased their production by uh, over 150%. Uh, a lot of their supply chain was in the United States. And so we, we worked with them to help them get supply, uh, supply chain um, products that they needed to increase production so they could produce more ventilators for Swedes, Americans, and people around the world who are suffering from COVID-19. So really happy with the work we did there. And then on the, you know, on, on the last piece, um, really happy with a lot of the work we've done around universities. That's why, uh, one reason I'm so excited to be here tonight. Um, you know, we've, we've actually made an effort to get out and visit many of the Swedish universities, been uh, to Lulia Technical University, and the Chalmers, uh, Karolinska Institute. You know, we have, um, we, we worked on exchanges, we've, um, met with uh, the you know, Fulbright, Fulbright, Fulbright um, chairs and students and researchers. Um, obviously, Swedes coming to America. America's coming to Swedes to study and research. Um, we've been focused on issues of academic uh, infiltration to ensure that research isn't stolen and ensure that um, freedom of their speech isn't influenced by the uh, People's Republic of China. And we've focused on innovation and just ways that we can increase uh, um, innovative uh, technologies and um, research and uh, the next generation of students coming out of Sweden's uh, very impressive universities. Um, and, uh, you know, just to add to that, one issue which kind of, in a way, touches on um, all three is, uh, is, uh, is 5G. And uh, very happy to see, even just today, that uh, Swedish government, um, or I guess Swedish, uh, it was basically decided that uh, the 5G is going to be um, ensured to be done by protected, um, by, by um, respected and uh, non-compromised uh, telecom companies. Um, and um, that's something that, uh, an outcome we're, we're very uh, happy by. And, um, you know, we've obviously um, had conversations with the Swedish government, and very happy that their independent analysis of this came to that conclusion. So another area that we're, we're very uh, proud of. So I read that your um, formal title is something like Ambassador Extraordinary and Plenipotentiary. Does, does that mean that there are some ordinary ambassadors at the embassy, <laughs> and then there's you? It, it definitely makes for a full business card right. if you had the whole title, yeah. So among all the ambassadors that the U.S. has sent to Sweden, who's your least favorite? 
That would be not very diplomatic of me if I answered. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me ask another question. So you've been here now for, for approximately one year. Mm -hmm. um, wh what has surprised you the most about this country and those of us who live here since you came? So I, um, I'd come six times to the country, but um, kind of as a, a tourist, visiting Swedish friends, doing some business in the, in the country. But obviously, um, moving here full time and having the level of uh, you know the meetings and the study, you actually get a, a whole new understanding of the relationship. I think the biggest surprise is just how closely the U.S. and Sweden work together, almost across the board. Uh, I, you know, I, I obviously it it makes sense because you have um, I think a lot of the same common values and interests. You know, our desire to um, you know push for the world for democracy and uh, human rights and um, you know freedom of speech, freedom of the press, all being core values. Um, but you know, it's you know you kind of I meet with um, agencies, organizations, and people from across Swedish society, and almost across the board, I'm impressed at how deeply our ties are. Um, so, so for example. You know, we let's see here. You go to, um, you know, I, I've had a chance to visit around the, the country a bit. Um, you know, visited the Odin Icebreaker up in um, near Lulia, um, and then you notice that you get a presentation, and they're talking about the research journeys they're going on with the um, yeah, U.S. National Science Foundation, and then you go up to the. Um, uh, we went to visit the um, one of the Norbotan regiment on the military side. They're talking about how they've been doing trainings with U.S. Marines. Um, we went to the um, um, you know you you, you visit um, companies and you, um, like I guess uh, you visit companies and so many of them are like oh we make the the most business we do worldwide is in the United States. Um, and you kind of kind of go across the board and um, it's it's you know you visit s range and they talk about the partnership with NASA um, and so the, the more I've seen of Swedish society the more I appreciate how close our two countries are and how strong the relationship truly is I think it it's probably never been stronger so one, one thing that's I think striking to a lot of foreigners who come who come to Sweden is that we hardly use cash anymore mm. And I imagine this is something you must have been thinking about considering your own background. Um, the, the Swedish Central Bank is considering introducing an electronic currency, the e-krona, which is, will be backed by the government offering an alternative to private forms of payment. Is this something you think we'll be seeing more of around the world? Let's see. Um, I, think, I think it's a fascinating question due to, um, unfortunately, electronic currency is something I have to recuse from. Okay, okay. So I'm not allowed to comment without um, having the appearance of a conflict of interest. I understand. Um, so I think that there are probably quite a few students, as you anticipated in your talk, who are interested in, in politics. Um, a colleague in the United States once said to me that there are three things Europeans never understand about the United States, one being baseball, 
the other being religion, and the third being politics. So what do you think it is that sort of folks from here have trouble understanding about what's going on in U.S. politics? Um, great quote. <laughs> right. um, yeah, no, I, I think one thing to, um, that's worth pointing out is you know, even though we're just one country, it's important to remember we're roughly the same size as Europe geographically. And within a country that big, there are lots of different types of people. You know, obviously you have people, uh, you know, rural settings, people living in urban settings. Um, you know, the east coast of um, the U.S. is much different than the west coast. And, you know, northern U.S. much different than the south. Um, all these individuals have kind of different interests, um, different cultures. Uh, um, you know, they spend their time different, they have different concerns. Uh, different things are important to them politically. You know, I've lived, you know, almost my entire life in the U.S., and there's still parts of the, of the country I haven't had a chance to fully explore and understand. So I think any type of um, trying to generalize what is um, important to Americans, there's just so much nuance and subtlety behind that, which probably is not captured by, like, an average American. And so I think, um, I think that politically that means... Um, Lots of different things are important to lots of different Americans. And so that obviously spills over into um, our elections and um, the issues that people are voting for, the parties, the, the, uh, the candidates. So I, th I think that's kind of something to keep in mind. Um, I, I've been in the United States as a visiting scholar during two, two very contentious elections, the one in 2000 and the one in 2016. And one of the things that struck me is that in this country, I think, if, if the other side wins, people are usually sort of okay with that. It's, you know, the process is seen as legitimate. Folks still think of the government as being essentially on uh, their, their government. When I speak to American friends, I sometimes have the feeling that if the other side wins, it's like a foreign power took over the country. Do you agree with that difference or sort of comparison? And are you worried about it? Let's see. No, I... Obviously, near elections, there's a lot of elevated emotions and elevated rhetoric. I think the U.S. system is designed on purpose to have more of a combative kind of um, approach where um, the country is focused much more on having debates, um, you know, hammering things out, and then through that we get to a better outcome. Um, so I, I think it's part of, uh, it's kind of by design that you, ha you have this kind of uh, inflated language, inflated rhetoric. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I think that's just, uh, I, think, I, think, I think that um, it, it's, it's, it's especially heightened now just because we're near the election. So the first uh, U.S. ambassador to Sweden, Benjamin Franklin, I think, never actually bothered coming here. <laughs> uh, but the first fellow who came here was a guy called Jonathan Russell. Um, he later uh, pursued a career in politics. He ran for Congress, and I think he might have written some upsetting things about one of the presidents. Are, are these career options that are sort of y your next step? So, um, look, I, ha I, um, I have a lot of 
things I would like to, you know, accomplish in life. Um, you know, I potentially, uh, I think it might maybe run for office one day, maybe try to run a, uh, run another company, um, maybe try to write a book. I, I, I haven't uh, decided. That the truth is I've actually have been literally trying to just focus on my time in Sweden. There is so little time that we have spare as is with yeah. all the meetings and uh, travel and um, receptions we have to host, etc., managing the embassy. So I, I try not to be too forward-looking and just literally uh, make the best I can of my time here, enjoy my time in Sweden. Um, so I think there's, there'll be time for me to figure that out. So I, I, can't, I can't predict how that'll turn out. But um, no, I, I can say that I'm, I really love my time here. I'm trying to s- strengthen the relationship with my remaining time in Sweden, and this has literally become like a dream come true to be here. I think it's time to open up for some uh, questions. Den här aftonen är sponsrad av Broder Jacobs. Broder Jacobs har blivit utsett till Lunds bästa kafé och är beläget på Klostergatan 9. Gör som studentafton och infaskaffa er ett nybakade bröd och er rykande färska bullar. Ingen annanstans än hos Broder Jacobs. I think there's a question back there. Uh, third row. Uh, yeah, my name is Frida, and I study here. Uh, I want to steal uh, Peter Thiel's question. Um, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? Let's see here. I, I um, okay. L- um, there's something called the power law, which um, if there's any mathematicians in the um, room, you'll you'll have, um, study this, no doubt. Um, the venture capital version of this, was, which is how we kind of came to study this was that our top performing company in investment in one venture capital fund would be more valuable than all of the other companies combined. And it turns out there's many phenomenon in nature that follow this power law. For example, the distribution of earthquakes also follows a power law. Um, and there are um, uh, ma- many other f- natural phenomenon. So it's, it's kind of a, um, this thing is almost hard to believe until you actually start looking at the data. So I think a version of power law, I guess what my answer to that would be, I think there's a version of power law that we should each apply to our own lives as well. That there's probably one thing that we should be doing that is more valuable than all the other things we can do combined. Now obviously that requires some self-reflection, makes you look really hard how you um, spend your time, what's important to you. But I think if you uh, use that as some type of guiding principle, it'd probably serve you well. All right. So hi, my, hi, let's see if so this is on. Uh, my name is Jonas. Uh, nice to have this opportunity to get the question in. So uh, I think about technology a lot, and I think that internet started in a very idealistic place. We talked about you know, how this was a level playing field, everybody could connect, and then everything would sort itself out. And I think that we've seen a lot of different waves where we see that we've had now national countries, national security interests, as you mentioned with the 5G decision today, are starting to take technology very, very seriously. But I think we have some real issues because we got a lot of legal entanglement currently because of the privacy settings in Europe and the hyperscale clouds and so forth in the US. And just because a couple of weeks ago we got the European courts to take this decision that the privacy contract or the agreement with Privacy Shield could be invalid 
that would mean basically that every great school, every great company in Sweden would be in breach, including this university. Any thoughts? Uh, uh, sorry, yeah. And what was the question? I got, I got the. Uh, any thoughts? Oh, any thoughts? Question. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. Um, yeah. So no, obviously, I think you're referring to Schrems, the Schrems two case. Um, no, obviously, it, it's highly disruptive to um, economic relationship. Uh, it's uh, the the cost if this proceeds is, um, I believe, could be fifty billion dollars, um, U.S. Um, I think it hurts the U.S. I think it hurts Sweden, um, and I, th I, um, I know there are um, experts working on this. Um, I'm not a, um, a privacy lawyer or uh, don't know all of the very technical aspects of that, but I know uh, I know we have teams working on that. I, um, we're hope hoping we are able to come to some type of. Um, um, resolution on that in, um, in the months to come. More questions? Yeah, my name is Gustav, student at the university over here. And uh, my question is uh, for you to elaborate a little bit on the startup landscapes in Sweden and the states respectively. Where, where would the better pl place be to start up a new company? Thank you. Let's make sure. Um, where's Where's the better place to start a company? The Sweden or the U.S. if yeah. you want to start a startup. Look, I, th I think that, um, I think there are advantages um, to both. Um, obviously, we, um, we, we love entrepreneurs, and so we would uh, welcome you to the U.S. to start your company there. Um, that being said, we're not trying to steal all your, um, your top entrepreneurs. But um, um, no, I, no, I, I um, so I, I think, I think there are, um, if I were a student, a Swedish student, or a student, uh, Swedish graduate deciding where to start my company, look, um, there's obviously the personal considerations, do you, um, your, the family ties, your friends are here, how much important is that to you now versus um, just optimizing the, um, the chances of the success of the startup. I think that Another thing is um, it's good, if I was just gonna optimize on maximizing the value of the startup, I think I would look at, in a way, it depends what this, the startup is, I think. I tend to think it's, be, it's good to be in ecosystems that are uh, similar to what you're building. So I think Sweden has had a lot of success in music, given Spotify and um, other companies in, in that sector have succeeded here. I know there's a lot of good gaming companies in Sweden. I think uh, sustainability has been an area of strength for Sweden. And so if you're in a sector where Sweden excels, there's extra reason to be, to be here because maybe you can, um, it's easier to partner or um, people who have helped build those companies, maybe you can recruit them as an angel investors or as advisors or as employees. Um, I think on the other hand, if, if you're building something, there, there's a lot of other reasons you might want to be in the U.S. Um, so, for example, if you're selling to um, enterprise, enterprise software companies, maybe you want to be in Silicon Valley so you can go sell to those companies and bring them on, um, partner with them, or um, maybe it's easier to, to sell them 
product since they're, if they're all nearby, it's easier to build relationships with them and take them to lunch and dinner. Um, if you're, I remember back in the day of um, Facebook launching, um, was it face? It was um, Facebook platform. A friend had started a company in um, L.A. and he deeply regretted it because he found out the info a little bit too late, and other people moved in and had an advantage over him since he was an hour flight south. So I think that matters a lot. Um, you know, also you can look at things like um, it might it might be easier to raise money in one country or the other. It might be easier to hire in one place or another. There might be more favorable tax rules in one or another. These are probably the questions I'd want to get a handle on before, um, before deciding. I think we have a live stream question now. Yeah, uh, we have received uh, a lot of questions uh, from our live stream. And first out is Nicholas. Uh, looking at the top 20 tech companies in the world, there is uh, no company from Europe. Why do you think European tech companies have failed to compete with China and the U.S. on the global tech market? Let's see here. Um, well, I guess, I hope that, that um, first of all, let me say, I guess, I hope that there will be in the future. And so, obviously, um, you have extremely talented um, engineers, entrepreneurs in Europe. Um, I think the ecosystem has been developing quickly. I think that there are definitely areas where um, you know Europe has leads the world in certain technologies. So I'm optimistic. So I guess let's start with that. I think it's hard to um, these why questions are a little hard uh, to answer since um, it's probably a confluence of so many different factors. I think that, you know, U.S. has kind of um, the advantage of we have a very well-developed ecosystem, especially in Silicon Valley with investors and university, um, other startups, and it kind of feeds on itself in a good way. I think China has had the advantage of having a home market of a, a billion, what is it, a billion three? A billion, three billion, four, what, um, and so, uh, and the fact that they, I guess, blocked international competition from their own market meant they were able to develop a lot of companies that were effectively copycats, and they have a um, sole exposure to this huge market. That's probably why China has a, num a lot of those. Um, I, I think it's only a matter of time. I think, I think the more important thing is. Uh, try to see how do you fix that so that there are some European ones on that list, uh, um, you know, five years from now. Hey, I'm Andre, and I have a classical question on North Stream 2. Um, so Russia wants to sell gas to Europe, and so does the US, and the US says we're dependent on Russia, but isn't that a good thing that we're dependent on each other for the sake of peace? I would like to have an explanation from what you think about North Stream 2. Absolutely. Um, so, we, I guess the reason the U.S. is um, against Nord Stream 2, um, I guess an interesting concept, important concept of ener energy um, security, in which, um, obviously, given how important energy is to uh, powering one's GDP, um, 
and industry and just um, allowing citizens to, to get to work and survive. You don't want to create a situation where um, you could be holding to someone who could threaten or actually turn off um, supply to that energy. Um, ultimately, um, so the goal would be um, you never, you know, um, I, think, I think the problem is with, with Russia is that we don't want to turn uh, energy into some type of uh, political weapon that they could use um, against um, Germany or others who are um, reliant on that, on that gas. Um, you know, it's, I mean, in an ideal world, you'd be like um, Sweden. We don't have to even import energy because you can uh, produce all you need. Um, but second best would be at least getting it from countries who would never threaten to, to turn that off if you ever get into a dispute or a disagreement. Uh, unfortunately, um, uh, this does not provide that. And, th and there's also, um, it cuts out um, Ukraine, which is, um, which they really need that revenue as well. I think it's about 3% of their GDP comes from um, gas transit fees from Russia. And by circum, by basically doing a runaround, um, it also really hurts Ukraine, who's already been in a really tough situation because of uh, Crimea and Russian actions in the country. Okay, um, let's go on with uh, another question from the live stream. Uh, and this one is uh, from Emil Eriksson. Uh, during the current COVID-19 pandemic, Sweden has been standing out as an outlier in national policy. This policy has received global attention and in the US it has been used as an argument against lockdown. As this is not the first time Sweden has been used as a political tool, how would you explain the US use of Sweden and its policies in political argument? You know, it's, um, you know first of all, I think, I think every country, including the US, including Sweden, is doing the best they can to fight the pandemic. Obviously, um, different countries have taken different approaches. Um, I don't think we're going to know until this pandemic is over and analyses have been run, which country has done the best. First of all, we don't know how long it's going to last. Um, I think you have to include, um, um, you know, obviously you have to include the, uh, the economy in that calculation. You have to include second order effects, mental health issues, um, maybe people at depression, suicides, uh, other things that could be secondary effects or um, you know, forced social isolation, etc. So I think it's, um, I think we'll know after this is over who did this best. I think, obviously, um, some people in the U.S. want to emulate Sweden. Some think Sweden's making a mistake. Uh, I think you're seeing um, people from a lot of countries having these other binary reactions to uh, the Swedish approach. Um, so I, I think it's yeah I think it's too early to know, and um, it's definitely been a very high quality of life in Sweden despite COVID. So I am personally glad I'm here this year versus anywhere else. <coughs> uh, my name is Hampus, and I'm here as a student. And I was wondering uh, to have your take on the difference in red tape and bureaucracy in the private sector and public sector, respectively, and how that has and if it has 
affected your work in the public sector so far? Thank you. Yes. No. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll say yes, it has. Um, no, I think definitely one of the biggest transitions from the private sector to uh, government has been the increase in um, you know, paperwork, bureaucracy, getting things done, um, approval from the lawyers, um, avoiding all conflicts of interests. Um, so it has been a big transition. Um, and you know, of course, it's frustrating at times. At the same time, we are dealing with issues that um, are very important and, and very massive, dealing with issues of national security. You know, often, you know, some of um, the U.S. policies obviously are on the scale of, you know, billions and billions of dollars. So it's important it gets done right, and you have to make sure everyone's equities are covered. And so I do understand why it's like that in ways. I think it's um, important to have a, a measured, considered approach um, get buy-in on the policies since they are so uh, important. And so, um, yeah, so it's a big transition, but that, that's kind of the thinking behind it. Let's take another question from uh, the live stream. And uh, we've got a question from Alice. Uh, what opportunities of collaboration do you think are missing today between Sweden and the U.S.? Let's see here. Yeah, no, um, you know, I think there's, there, it's hard to say exactly. I, I think that, um, look, I think you can always do more. It's just a matter of um, making the connections, looking for the shared interests, stating the case. Um, I guess one area where there could, there could be opportunities are sectors that didn't exist 10 years ago or 20 years ago. That by definition, maybe there hasn't been enough time to create partnerships or working on those things together. So that'd probably be a good, a good place to start. W what are the new things coming out? Are we working together? Probably not. And looking for opportunities to do that. Hey, it's m me again, Andre. Um, the next question would be that um, if the next president of the US, for example, would support North Stream 2 or any other project that's different from this president, and you'd have to then sit there and next year I'll ask a question again, and you have to defend the opposite position, how would you personally reconcile this, that you have to all of a sudden, after the election, you know, defend opposite positions? Let's see. Oh, um, well, first of all, Nord Stream, um, you know, concern about Russia is a bipartisan issue in the United States. So whether um, a Democrat or Republican is sitting in the Oval Office uh, on January 20th, I don't expect the Nord Stream 2 policy to change. I think that's um, strongly uh, both Democrat and Republican position. I don't see that changing at all. Um, could there be different um, policies with the change of administration? Um, certainly. Um, just, just to point out, though, um, I don't think it affects Sweden, really. I think that, first of all, um, you know, support for Sweden is a bipartisan issue think history has shown that. No matter um, who is in the White House, the relationship with Sweden keeps getting stronger and stronger. It's possible that um, um, you know, a pol some policies here or there could change. I think countries uh, can and do sometimes change their policy positions, sometimes with the change of government, sometimes 
change of circumstances or with new information. So I think just like I would have to deal with um, a change of policy due to new information, uh, I think you, you, you communicate the reasons behind it, the new policies, and you, uh, you find uh, a new way forward with, with that change. I've been told that uh, we've got time for uh, one um, last question from the live stream. And uh, this was sum submitted from uh, Felix Stamm. Uh, what is the most important, remarkable or astonishing thing you have learned in Sweden so far? Where to even begin? <laughs> um, let's see here. You know, most remarkable. Yeah, it's, it's a hard to even uh, pick a favorite uh, or you know, mo most remarkable. I think it's, um, yeah, um, you know, I, I tend to think that it would be probably, it would kind of be some combination of, maybe it's kind of a little repetitive, but um, just how, you know, I think it's literally how innovative, how um, you know, industrious, uh, entrepreneurial the, the Swedish people are. You know, I, I uh, learned the other day that at the periodic uh, table, the Swede, Swedes have been found the third most elements of any uh, any other country. Um, and you kind of just see this, you know, going back for centuries and centuries. Um, and um, and then the second one is literally just how closely we work together, and um, it makes. No, it, it definitely, uh, you know, I pinch myself being able to, to meet so many great Swedes uh, that are as working with our country. And, um, and it's literally been, yeah, just an inc incredible experience. I feel very privileged and very honored to um, have been chosen to, to represent my country here in Sweden. Yes, thank you so much. Uh, I really want to express my deepest gratitude for your presence here tonight, Ken and Johannes. But before we conclude this evening, we have just one more question, and that is who you think we should invite here to Student Afton. Who are your dream guests? Oh. We can start with you, Ken. Can I um, pick someone who um, has passed away? Yeah, of course. Well, I think um, someone who's always um, inspired me greatly would be uh, Steve Jobs, who I think was um, the best living entrepreneur before he passed away some years ago. So uh, I think uh, if you'd had the chance, he would have been the dream, the dream speaker. And you, Johannes? Well, I gather that uh, the society here has invited every Swedish prime minister for almost 100 years, so... Why not start a new tradition with the uh, new U.S. president or the <laughs> uh, uh, or whoever's selected in the election uh, a few weeks from now? And I'm sure Ambassador Howery can make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing. And also a big thanks to the audience for each one of you coming here tonight. Um, and for, for all of you who follow us on the stream as well, of course, uh, the next Student Afton will take place the 4th of November. So please save that date and I hope to see you then as well. Thank you so much for tonight. Oh. <laughs> Thank you so much. Stort tack för att du har lyssnat på Student Aftons podcast. Du hittar oss och information om kommande aftnar på Facebook och Instagram.